Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Welcome to the Cynical Podcast, a weekly discussion of current affairs in China, produced in partnership with SupChina. SupChina is a great way to stay on top of China news in a few minutes a day with a daily email newsletter, a mobile phone app, and at the website, subchina.com. It's a feast of business, political, and cultural news about a nation that is reshaping the world. We are coming to you from Sunnyvale, California, in the heart of Silicon Valley. I am Kaiser Guo, joined, of course, by Jeremy Goldcorn, who has just returned to the U.S. from a visit to New Zealand. Jeremy, man, how are you? Very, very well indeed, Kaiser. I understand you discovered some fantastic Chinese food while you were there, huh? Yeah. How, how did it compare to that great place we ate it in Palo Alto last night? Well, pretty good. I mean, Auckland has a huge Chinese population. I believe it's about 20% of the city. Jesus. And uh, while it seems that the English-speaking people don't seem to be aware of the great Chinese food um, and told us there wasn't a lot of good Chinese food in, in Auckland, but we went on dianping.com and found <laughs> <laughs> reviews in Chinese of of all this great Chinese food, including a branch of the Beijing restaurant Hua Jia Yuan. Oh, wow. Uh, which was, yeah, right. yeah right. exactly. And it felt like stepping into Beijing. It was amazing. Everybody was Chinese. The food tasted really pretty much the same as the, the Beijing branch. And many of the waiters seemed unable to speak English. So it was a rather marvelous experience. And, and they don't advertise. I mean, there's no like signage or... There's a tiny little sign saying Hua's restaurant in English, but they don't seem to advertise in English. When they answer the phone, they answer in Chinese. <laughs> <laughs> it's That's kind hysterical. of like this sort of underground world unavailable to the non-Chinese speaking people. I in will wonder whether they're even paying taxes. I'm sure they are, Kaiser. Well, this week, as I've said, we're in the San Francisco Bay Area, where there may also be some restaurants only discoverable through Dianping. This was, of course, the area where the first large waves of Chinese immigrants arrived on American shores, and it continues to be a vital center uh, of Chinese-American life. UC Berkeley, my alma mater, now has 42% Asian students, and many of those are, and probably more than half are, of Chinese ethnic background. And the city of Cupertino, just up the road here, is now, what, 23.8% Chinese, as I used to find out. And the Chinese in America are, of course, a very, very diverse group with many having roots in America from before the notorious Exclusion Act of 1882. Many others who came to the United States from Taiwan in the 1950s, as, as your parents, Kaiser, did. Mm -hmm. uh, there were also many scholars and other intellectuals who came from mainland China after reform and opening up began in the 80s. Many from the mainland in Hong Kong after 1989. And from Hong Kong as 1997 approached. Yeah. You know, we got everything from these Fujianese living in Queens uh, to doctoral students who have stayed on to work here in Silicon Valley. And you got these obscenely rich people buying up mansions and penthouse apartments. And then you have like 304,000 students who are currently enrolled in U.S. universities. So today on Seneca, we're going to be talking about how China's rise in the span of just one generation from an isolated and impoverished laggard to a major economic power and potential global rival to the U.S. has affected Chinese and Chinese Americans living here in the United States. Um, how has the changing image of China among Americans and the vicissitudes of the U.S.-China bilateral relationship affected the way that Americans view or indeed the way that they treat the Chinese living among them. So to, today we're delighted to be joined by Professor Frank H. Wu. He is chair of the Committee of 100, a nonprofit organization founded by prominent Chinese Americans dedicated to promoting the full participation of Chinese Americans in all fields of American life and encouraging constructive relations between the peoples of the United States and greater China. Frank is also a distinguished professor at the University of California Hastings College of Law, where until December of last year he was not only chancellor but also dean and he's been voted the most influential dean in legal education by National Jurist Magazine and has a very distinguished career as a scholar, a teacher, and administrator at many of America's finest universities, including at historically black Howard University, where he was the first Asian American prof. 
Uh, it was just pretty amazing. He's also the author of Yellow, Race in America, Beyond Black and White, and a number of other works examining Chinese-American and Asian-American identities and their place in American society from legal, cultural, and social ethical points of view. He's a regular contributor to the Huffington Post, where you can read many of his excellent and very thoughtful writers. He describes himself as a writer with a day job. Uh, Frank Wu, man, welcome to Seneca. Great to be here with you. Frank, perhaps I can start off by asking you if there really is such a thing as a Chinese-American identity. I mean, after all, the Chinese in America are very diverse, not just mainlanders, but also people from Taiwan, from Hong Kong, who may or may not identify as Chinese. And they run the gamut from fully assimilated people who don't speak Chinese at all or may have no interest at all in their notional motherland to people living in Flushing, Queens, who don't speak English. Um, they're people who are adherents to Falun Gong and protest outside Chinese embassies and consulates, uh, pro-democracy di dissidents to ardent Chinese patriots and nationalists who give full-throated support to the Communist Party. They're speakers of Hokkien, Mandarin, Cantonese, Hakka, and a number of other dialects. So is there any meaning in considering these people together as one group, and what do they have in common? Is there any there there? Yes. Yeah, actually, hey... Actually, I'm going to jump in here for a sec. What follows for the next roughly 12 minutes does not confessedly have a whole lot to do with China. It's more about ideas of race and Asianness in America and involves a rather in-depth discussion of Keanu Reeves and his film oeuvre and then of Tiger Woods and his golfing career. So if you want to skip it and we understand why you might want to, head to 17 minutes, 54 seconds. Thanks, and back to the show. Let me take you back across the Pacific. There are no Asians in Asia. What I mean by that is nobody in Asia walks around saying, I'm an Asian person, right? Uh, Pan-Asian identity is associated with idealism or imperialism. People would subdivide Chinese, Japanese, Korean, Vietnamese, Indian, Pakistani, and so on. And so just the idea that you're Asian really doesn't exist until you cross the Pacific and come to the U.S., where people say, well, you all look the same, Chinese, Japanese, Ching Chong, you know, it's all the same. And so your question is a great question. I've wondered that myself. Can we find a Chinese America, an Asian America? So you've already identified so many of the cleavages, the differences. There's generation, there's origin, there's dialect, there's religion, there's politics, there's class. And people break themselves up every which way that you could imagine. But what unites us is that to others, we are all the same, right? <laughs> uh, it doesn't matter whether you say, wait a minute, I'm sixth generation. My great, great grandfather worked on the Transcontinental Railroad, or whether you're in that pejorative phrase, fresh off the boat, we all look the same. Right, uh, But you're right. There's just this amazing variation. There are adoptees. There's a, there's a group that you didn't mention that's huge that actually it's not unusual anymore. If you're middle class, if you're upper middle class, you're college educated, you know a Chinese woman, girl who's adopted whose parents are white. Maybe they're Jewish. Maybe she had they're a bar mitzvah. They're probably Jewish. <laughs> right. That's right. So, so and, and they're Blasians, right? Right, right. Uh, in the vernacular. So, Sorry. Uh, as a new immigrant to America, explain Blasian? Afro-Asians. Ah, people Blasian. who are okay. black, black and Asian. Asian. Right. Blasian. Okay. Right. That's gotcha. the street lingo. <laughs> Blasian, right? See, okay. I, I'm a man of the people here. Uh, so You did teach at Howard. Yeah, that's right. So I'll, I'll, I'll give you a way of thinking about this. Racial identity is constructed. It's fictitious. We make it up, but it's a myth we all participate in. Sure. So I have a question. Why is Keanu Reeves white and Tiger Woods black when they're both Asian? So Keanu Reeves and, and Keanu Reeves and Tiger Woods are so famous, they only have one name, right? You can say Keanu, you can say Tiger, and you would know who you're talking about. That's the level of celebrity they've achieved as a movie star and athlete. Well, Keanu Reeves, his father, his estranged biological father, was Hawaiian Chinese. Mm -hmm. He is Hawaiian Chinese. He's this mysterious figure who abandoned the family or something. Uh, and then uh, Keanu Reeves' mother, who was an English showgirl costume designer, and by the way, I'm not making this up. You can look it up on Wikipedia. Uh, it was raised in Canada and took 
his stepfather's name. I'm surprised okay. at how much you know about the life yeah. of this man. Hey, hey, I- I'm a huge fan. Point Break, 1989, <laughs> Zen Surfer, yeah, uh, Thriller, horrible remake. You know, you wanted me to recommend something in the, end of the show. I recommend Point Break. It's, okay. it's the right. best. Think, yeah, it's a great call. Zen, yeah. Is, yeah, surfing heist thriller. <laughs> star, and it stars Keanu Patrick Reeves. Swayze, isn't that too? That's yeah. right, that's right. So, so, so you were saying that so Keanu's father was one of those men who reeves his family. Yeah, but uh, yeah, but, but but yeah, there you go. But but Keanu Reeves is not just white; he's a valley dude, right? right? He came to fame in Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure, oh, which yeah. yeah so right. so uh, you know, I was a law school dean. I have to condemn stoner movies, but that's what it was. One of the best stoner movies ever defined. The '80s defined Southern California Valley culture. He's got this blank look, you know, that people identified with, right? He goes right. on uh, to that's make... That's singular ability. You see, that's right. That blank yeah, well, look. Because people... He's inscrutable, right? That's the Asian half, right? But he goes on to do Speed, establishing himself as an action hero, and then The Matrix, done all these movies, huge blockbusters. But he's closeted. Nobody looks at Keanu Reeves and says, that is an Asian-American movie star. Right. He's a white guy. Right? Not just white. He's a suburban Southern California definitive exemplar of time and place. He could not be more white. So right. he made a movie a few years back called Street Kings. It's a B movie. I recommend that too. Right? <laughs> We're uh, talking him up here. He, he plays a conflicted, maybe corrupt cop in Los Angeles. Opening scene, he busts some uh, Korean gangsters, uh-huh. and he's using all these racial epithets directed at Asians. Really? Right? Yeah. Uh, and so I, I would just ask, how many people, if they pass Keanu Reeves on the street, would say, there, there's a, an Asian dude? Hardly anybody, right? Right, right? Now, Tiger Woods. So, Tiger Woods. Oh, well, so, but phenotypically, he's not exactly Asian looking, right? Ah, uh, right. So, let, let, let's get to that in a minute, yeah, right? Okay, all right. So, 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 the way people answer my question is they say, well, come on, it's obvious. They, they, it's just how they look, right? But what does that mean? That means that this is totally superficial. Sure. It's just based on how you look, right? But once you point it out, I've had people say, oh, yeah, that's right. You can, you can sort of see it around the eyes, right? <laughs> all right. So, so Tiger Woods. Uh, is a golfing phenomena. He single-handedly reinvents the sport. I mean, literally, he does this commercial where he's bouncing uh, the uh, golf ball and, and hitting it up and down, playing with it uh, while holding the club with just one hand. He's just sort of casually playing around. That's his famous iconic commercial where he bounces it 27 times or some crazy thing, uh, single-handedly. So he he gets all these young people all these people of color interested in golf, you know, a stodgy sport, you know, where the announcers have to talk in a whisper, et cetera. Played by fat old white men, typically. That's, that's right. Right. Yeah, at exclusive country clubs. <laughs> yeah. Right? <clears throat> then he becomes a reluctant poster child, you know, one wants to represent a race, but he, he represents the mixed race movement, right? So uh, he's 18 years old. He's, he's a phenomena. He defeats all of his rivals. He goes on Oprah Winfrey. Right? That's how you make a cultural statement in modern America back when that show was on. That's an Oprah Win- Winfrey. To do what? To talk about he's Cablin Asian. He's made up this word, Cablin Asian, <laughs> Caucasian, Black Asian. His father was an American uh, Green Beret soldier. Uh-huh. His mother uh, was mostly Thai, but actually Eurasian, a term you don't hear that much anymore. And uh, he grew up uh, believing mostly in Buddhism, right? So, so then there's this weird fight. You have to go back about 20 years. Who but, gets him? Yeah, who gets him? Right. Which team is he on, right? right? Is, yeah, yeah. is he black or is he Asian? You might remember this. I so, do. I yeah, do. so, so African Americans said, well, you know, he and his father have talked movingly about segregation uh, in the South at courses that he couldn't play or had to sneak onto. And it would be wrong for him to distance himself from blacks once he's achieved this stardom, right? This success. And then Asians said, and this is, this is, it's funny. It's almost like a stereotype. They said, mathematically, he's more Asian than anything else. Just, just, of course, that's where they'd go. Yeah. Add it all up. Yeah. He's mostly Asian. He once played for the Thai national team. You know, he identifies with Buddhism. He's one of us, right? So, so, so there's this weird fight. All right. Then there's this moment. There's one of these sports scandals. I've been thinking, I, I have to catalog these moments where, 
uh, Asian immigrant and Asian Americans become phenomenally successful as athletes, so not in a domain they're associated with. Tiger Woods is one of them, and one of his um, competitors who he's defeated, a white Southerner, twice his age, named Fuzzy Zeller. Okay, so this is 20 years ago. You might, you might remember this. I do not. There's a TV crew following Fuzzy Zeller, and, and they just say, hey, what, what, what do you think of this, uh, this Tiger Woods? And he says, he later says, uh, I didn't know I was being recorded. I was just joking, et cetera. And remember, this is someone who actually knows Tiger Woods. So it's not like the rest of us who see him on TV. This is someone who is playing golf with him. It's been the same foursome. He says, well, you, you, you tell that boy. Ooh, you know, Ooh, so boy. that wording, it, it, does he mean young person compared to me? Or does he mean what they, uh, does, is it harkening back to what they did in the South, which is you refer to every African-American male, old, as a young, boy, right? yeah, distinguished, or whatever, as boy. But you, you look up this quote. He says, you tell that little boy. Uh, and then, so the background here is at the Masters, when you're the champion, you select the dinner menu. All the competitors sit down for the banquet. It's part of the lore of the legend, the uh-huh. myth of the Masters. So Fuzzy Zeller says to this TV crew, you, you, you tell that little boy not to serve fried chicken and collard greens at the dinner. <laughs> so God, Fuzzy Zeller, a white Southern man, looks at Tiger Woods, a self-proclaimed Cablin Asian, and identifies him as Black, right. indelibly black, and makes fun of stereotypically Southern black food. Right. Right? He did not say, tell that boy not to serve lemongrass chicken, you right. know, right. Uh, or, or curry, yeah, yeah, which would have been equally inappropriate. Okay, so what's the upshot of this? The upshot is Keanu Reeves is a white guy. Tiger Woods is a black guy. They're both Asian. How do we explain it? Well, you, you offered the explanation most people. Well, just look at him, right? Except what this means is we're just going on the surface because even after I tell you Tiger Woods' dad was Hawaiian Chinese or, and uh, – uh, I'm sorry, Keanu, uh, Keanu Reeves' <laughs> dad was Hawaiian Chinese and Tiger Woods' uh, mother was Eurasian, you don't process it. I don't process it. We still see them the way we see them. Sure, and then sure. here's another piece. Bruce Lee. Bruce Lee was white. He was one quarter white. Uh, you, you're, you're skeptical. I, I, I can see you're looking at me. No, like, no, I'm just, like I, just, I, I was, I was with you until you said that. No, but, no, this is new information to me. That's all. Yeah, no, I, I was just at the Wing Luke Museum in Seattle. Uh-huh. They got a big exhibit on Bruce Lee, and his mother was half Caucasian. Your mother's half Caucasian. That makes you one quarter Caucasian. But Bruce Lee is iconic. He's virile, masculine. He's the first Asian male, huge movie star, director, writer, producer, uh, kung fu martial arts expert. Uh, He's a quarter white. So uh, the point that I'm making is this is all a jumble. It's all complex. It's all confusing. Nothing is simple, but we flatten it. We, we deliberately make it simple and we break uh, people up into these categories. Uh, but there are all these differences. There are so many of these differences uh, that I wonder, is there anything meaningful other than in the stereotype, in the defensive move that we make because people look at us as the same. Okay. So we're going to get back to China here. Okay. Right. We're going to take this back because, you know, this is ultimately a show that's got to, you know, remain tied to China. And while yeah. this whole discourse on, on race in America, we could go on for hours you, about you, it. It's, you it's you can edit so. it all out. <laughs> no, I won't. But let's, let's talk about how stereotypes of Chinese, specifically in America, has changed and how much of this has to do with China's stature in the world, with its relative power, and has, as that has changed. I mean, American attitudes toward China are, are kind of, they're all over the place, right? I mean, you've got pity for the Chinese people who are toiling under the lash of this authoritarian dictatorship. You've got, you know, admiration or, or possibly a fear of their supposed prowess at, at math and at science. At the same time, they have this, like, contempt for their supposed inability to innovate anything, right? Uh, you have, you know, anger for all the jobs they've supposedly taken away, but gratitude for having stocked the shelves of Walmart with so much, you know, affordable consumer stuff. You got poison dog food, you got marvelous infrastructure, but at the same time, you have the toxic air. So, you know, putting it all in the balance, What's China's rise done for the image of Chinese Americans in the eyes of other Americans? Great question. And you're right. They're connected. 
So in my briefcase, I have my passport. Uh-huh. I have my U.S. passport. Why do I have my U.S. passport? Well, lots of reasons. Uh, one of the reasons I have my U.S. passport is just in case. Just in case someone gives me a hard time. But I've realized, you know, pulling out a U.S. passport is just going to make people laugh at you, right? Like, oh, yeah, who do you think you are? You had a U.S. passport, so what? Uh, but when I was a kid, the image was very different than it is now. But what stayed constant is if you're Chinese-American, you're a representative of China. doesn't matter whether you want to be. doesn't matter if you're a spokesperson. You're presumed to be a spy, right? You're just sort of, well, your eyes, the texture of your hair, uh, the color of your skin. Uh, you can't help but be associated with Beijing. Right And vice versa. So as goes China, so go Chinese-Americans. As go Chinese-Americans, so goes China. When I was a kid, so I grew up in Detroit in the 1970s. When I was a kid, you know, there was the customary cruelty of childhood, the teasing and taunting on the playground, the do you eat dogs? How can you see with eyes like that? Uh, are, are your parents communists? Uh, you know, Ching Chong Chinaman stuff. And back then the image was Chinese are polite. They're, they're deferential. So, yes, yeah, submissive, docile. Uh, it was an emasculated image, right? It was bowing and shuffling and backing out of the room. It was the image of uh, the, yeah, of the waiter uh, or maybe the cook, of the laundry man, of the domestic. And that image was powerful. Uh, I remember in 1987, in Los Angeles, I went to a convention. It was the first ever convention of the Asian American Journalists Association. I was very lucky to, to go to that convention. I'd won a scholarship. I went to this panel where there was an editor for some big newspaper back when people read newspapers and cared about newspapers, who opened his remarks. He thought he was going to be funny and flattering. He opened his remarks by saying, I am so happy to be here with all of you Asians. You're all so polite. (laughs) And he was hissed. And I'm sure he was bewildered. Why would anyone hiss him? Because polite, like all racial stereotypes, is double-sided, right? It's two-edged. It's to be polite is to know your place, right? So that was the image then. I'm not that old. I just turned 49. Okay, so within my lifetime, the image went from polite, submissive, deferential, know your place, to rude, won't line up properly, shoving busloads of tourists uh, who are- The crass nouveau riche, right, right. Yeah, and, but have plenty of money to spend. Can't we put a time frame on that? Because, I mean, my sense is that's really very, very recent, just yes. the last few years. Is that, that's is right. that correct? Yeah. But we've witnessed this. You, I, I would say you're absolutely right. So something happened. And what happened? Kaiser, you're, you're right. Rise of China. So what happened was, let's say, uh, Jeremy, let's just say until five years ago, all right, uh, the image of China, Chinese people, was weak, was uh, because part of being polite is, well, you have no choice, right? You're, you're, you're weak. It's a position uh, that you have to take. And then something happened. China didn't just rise. It's that people became aware that it had risen. So if you think back to this, let's say you're both China watchers, you both lived uh, in Beijing. Go back 20 years, okay? China hands, policy experts in Washington, D.C., people like you, they, they would have said China's on the rise. Right. They would have predicted China will become powerful. They wrote books, anxious, paranoid books about uh, China taking over, right? 20 years ago. So that was the New York Times reading, well-educated, sophisticated, cosmopolitan elite had that view. Ten years ago, people started to talk about it. Now, in this election, everyone's talking about it. So you go to the man or woman on the street, the proverbial man or woman on the street, just an ordinary person, does not care what's on the New York Times bestseller list. They're not reading that book. They will tell you, China. Enemy number one, China, economic threat, military threat, cultural threat, taking over Hollywood. So what's happened is not just the rise, but the awareness of the rise. So the rise has been happening our entire adult lifetimes. However, most people just didn't pay any attention to it. They, they didn't because it's on the other side of the world, plus pre-internet, you, don't, you, don't, you just don't have the same experience now. Everything's hyper-accelerated. Everything's connected. You can see 
this rise, even if you don't care one bit about China. It's in your face. Hell, I can narrow so. it down to a year. Okay. I mean, yeah, I, can, yeah, I mean, it's yeah. 2008, right? The Olympics, 2008, well, yeah, 2009. Yeah, the Olympics and the financial crisis. Exactly, mm-hmm. happening one one after the other. I mean, the images of that, the opening ceremonies of the game, and then yeah. China has arrived. But right. it's not just China. Chinese tourists have arrived. Right, right, and, right. And people track this. The Chinese government will tell you, Chinese tourism has boomed. Right. Yeah. Absolutely. And America is eager for it because Chinese tourists spend more money on average than sure. tourists from other nations. And something else has happened. You can now get a visa. Used to be, if you went to the U.S. Embassy in China or to a consulate and applied for a visa, the rejection rate was really high. Yeah. You know, and, and Chinese people would complain. They'd tell stories. Oh, this is awful. We, we can't get to the U.S. because we, we're being denied a visa because we're being looked at as if we're some sort of threat. You know, maybe we'll stay, overstay our visa, et cetera. Now, the acceptance rate has gone way up. So there's both money that Chinese people have, uh, their push and pull factors. There's the ability to get a visa. And suddenly, you look around Yosemite. Wow, look at all these busfuls of Chinese. They're literally arriving by the busful because that's right. how tourism works, or San Francisco. So when I moved to San Francisco, I said to my wife, my wife is Japanese-American. She's from St. Louis. She's third generation. My late mother-in-law was born in California. My wife and I looked at one another after a little while and said, wow, look at all these Asians, because (laughs) we just hadn't lived someplace. You know, I grew up in Detroit. She grew up in St. Louis. We'd lived on the East Coast. We just hadn't been someplace with all these different Asians and in San Francisco, specifically Chinese. But an incredible diversity. So I had a, a student from China who was mm-hmm. working for me. And I got to chit-chatting with her as she was about to, to leave. I said, well, how, how have you liked it? She said, oh, I, I've been sort of homesick. Um, she said, I, I, I've missed China and Chinese people. I, I looked at her I said, you, you, you've missed Chinese people? I said, you, you do know San Francisco is the most Chinese part of the United States. This city, since it was founded, has been a quarter to a third Asian, and most of that's Chinese. How could you miss China? And she gave me a perfectly straightforward reply. She said, oh, they're Cantonese-speaking. I, I speak Mandarin. <laughs> That's my, my wife is the same way. Yeah, yeah. I, I wanted to say, okay, I, I have to recalibrate here because, um, all right, I, I understand what you're saying. That they're not your Chinese people. It's, it's, even that's it's, changing, isn't it? That's I mean, right. Yeah, Mandarin yeah. is becoming so common. That's right. Na- oh, yeah. Neighborhood by yeah. neighborhood. It depends on yeah. where. Yeah. But there are, there are parts of... Chinese San Francisco that you could find that are more Mandarin speaking, more Cantonese speaking. There are uh, people who speak Fujianese, Toisanese, you know, Hakka, you, you, you name it, right? Right. Um, but from the student's perspective, not sufficiently Mandarin speaking. She missed her China. That's right. <laughs> so um, how has China's rise made the, the foreigners problem? Has it made it worse for Chinese Americans, do you think? I mean, all these factors we've been talking about. Do you think that uh, non-Asian or non-Chinese Americans perceive you and Kaiser, say, as, as more foreign now than they did 10 years ago or less? Uh, well, there are all these trends working. So one is China has risen, but another is Asian Americans have become more common doing things other than being a laundryman or a waiter, right? So there are- Or for that matter, an engineer. That's right, right. or or a doctor. Yeah, but there are now Asian Americans who are entertainers. There are Asian Americans who are comedians, who Basketball stars. That's right, who actually have achieved success. So, uh, yes, there is some of that. Whose side are you on, you know? Uh, The people predict the rise of the East, the decline of the West in- Right, you know, I mean, Ch- Chinese immigrants are sort of representative of both, right? We're we're both the rise of the East and the decline of the West. So, I mean, it's it's hard to say. I mean, it's it's a mixed bag. On the one hand, people are, I think, you know, more aware. I mean, people in the Asian American community are more vocal. That's contributed some to, I guess, an increased sophistication. But at the same time, you feel that this threat, and it's really this is not the first time 
that we've seen uh, another power rising in the world, challenging American primacy in some ways. In the 20th century, when we saw both Germany and Japan surge forward economically and, and militarily, frankly, both countries were you know the ancestral home to a great many Americans, more Germans, of course, than, than Japanese. But uh, before uh, and during the Second World War, this, this is true. But from, from the point of view of, of ethnic Chinese in the U.S., uh, what parallels might you see between China's rise and the ascent of, of Germany and or Japan? I mean, you grew up in Detroit. You must have been affected by the Vincent Chin thing, right? Yeah, I'm writing a book about the Vincent Chin case. Okay, interesting. Uh, we'll, we'll get to that. But I mean, my, my point is that you know, yeah, that was a conflation. I mean, that he was yeah. killed because they thought he was Japanese, right? Right, so there was Japanese like, and foreign when he was Chinese-American. Right, yeah, right, right. Exactly. Right. But, so yeah. the, but the, the point is that there was that moment in the 1980s where uh, we were buying all of our electronics from Japanese companies. We were buying all of our cars, uh, and that was especially threatening in your hometown, uh, from Japanese manufacturers. There was that moment where... Uh, Maybe Japan was in an analogous situation to where we are now. So let's look at pre-war Germany, Japan, and then, of course, Japan in the 1980s. Are there lessons or parallels that we can draw? Absolutely. And because of technology, we're connected in a way that we just weren't even within our lifetimes. Sure. Because we can not just watch TV, we can go on the web and access directly in real time another culture. So whenever I visit China, I realize, oh, man, my mother was right. Should have paid attention in Chinese school, right? <laughs> because the other funny thing is if you're Chinese-American and you travel around in China and you start to talk, people shake their heads. Sometimes they say, oh, gee, you should be ashamed. Your, your Chinese is terrible. <laughs> you know, well, <laughs> So, yet, if you're Caucasian and you can say shisha, people are like, oh, you speak Chinese? Wow. We've so, never encountered that yeah, phenomenon. Yeah, so that this, it's, it's just, it's this weird reverse double standard. Sure, sure. Uh, but I sometimes wonder if, gee, maybe I've been too successful at, at, or maybe I've just made a mistake. Maybe my entire life has been a mistake in the following sense. I've always insisted, uh, I'm an American. I'm a kid from Detroit. Now I realize when I go to Beijing, so last time I was in Beijing, just a few weeks back, a more senior member of the delegation that I was traveling with, also Chinese-American, said to me, you know, you don't want to come across as some kid from Detroit. I said, <laughs> yeah, no, I, I get that. You know, I'm leading an important delegation. Uh, I need to be able to speak Mandarin or at least start a conversation in Mandarin. And... So sometimes I found that Chinese perceptions of Chinese Americans are all over the map too. Sure, sure. So I've had Chinese Chinese, there's no real better word for them other than Chinese Chinese, say to me, oh, yeah, you, you really are American. You, you just sort of look Chinese. <laughs> um, and so that's what makes me think, hmm, maybe I did this too well because there's something that neither Chinese Chinese nor other Americans – acknowledge, recognize, or are willing to accept, which is you can be both. Right. You can be of Chinese descent, have a Chinese name, yet be a loyal American, carry a U.S. passport like baseball, hot dogs, apple pie, and so on. Uh, and increasingly, that's what people are. They're, yeah, they're, I mean, this they're is, this transnational. My whole, my whole life's mission, I mean, is to try to create myself as a bicultural person. As that's a truly, right. You know, they, they, immersively they, bicultural person. Right? That's right. They go back and forth. And here's another change. It used to be, so I, I was a lawyer a long time ago, a lifetime ago. I'm literally twice the age now as I was when I was a practicing lawyer. Uh -huh. I'm just old enough that when I started as a practicing lawyer, if you could speak conversational Mandarin, you were bilingual. I could pass myself off as bilingual for purposes of law practice, right. even though I can't read or write. Now the standard is, I look at students coming into UC Hastings, they can pass the telephone test. They're fully fluent in two languages. Some have three languages. Right. I've met students who they say, well, you know, I'm Chinese, uh, but uh, I did a master's degree in Japan or Korea. Right. So, so they know Mandarin, 
plus another dialect, plus English, plus Japanese or Korean or French. Uh, I'm just astonished. So it makes me realize, oh, geez, I'm old. I, I could not compete. Well, let's, let's take us back yeah. to the, the question that I was asking about the loyalty conflict that is supposed to be at the heart. I mean, you were talking about, you know, the, the what we all hope to become, which is, you know, somebody who is bicultural, who can swim with equal ease in these two oceans. And yeah, that, that's wonderful. But uh, I'm talking about how you're perceived uh, by the rest of America. I know that I've, I've suffered from this before. There's this, this sort of nagging question about your loyalty. I mean, are we, in, are we past the possibility of internment again? And can I extend the question a little bit? Because, you know, it's a, kind of a sensitive issue. Um, you know, we did a podcast a few months back with your uh, committee of 100 colleague, uh, Holly Chang. And one of the things we discussed was the uh, your project, uh, the project your organization is engaged with to help Chinese American scientists become aware of their rights and understand the issues around the all too frequent accusations of spying for a foreign power that have unjustly ruined the careers of many prominent Chinese Americans. Like Xiao Xixing and... The list is sadly too long. One listener sent me an email, just to me and not to Kaiser, interestingly enough, complaining that although we covered the topic in some depth, we didn't address the fact that there are, in fact, many industrial, political, and military espionage cases where people who are ethnically Chinese have been found to be guilty. And, of course, this is a terribly sensitive issue. As a Jew, or rather half-Jew, at least someone surnamed Goldcorn, I'm all too aware of the injustices that are committed in pretty much all countries around the globe against people who are perceived as the other within. You know, your surname's Cohen, so can you really be trusted to 100% support the US? Or your surname is Wang, uh, can you be trusted? So, I mean, this is a very complex question, and I think we've uh, asked a number of questions in one big package, but how would you respond to that? Yeah, you're absolutely right. So, you know, there's a visceral gut level you should send me that guy's address i'm going to talk to that (laughs) (laughs) you know that there's the for me uh, i'll tell you when i watch sports so if there's the olympics going on and and i turn on the tv i i don't hesitate for a second i cheer for the american team Uh, it's easy It, it would never occur to me uh, to cheer for even in women's the, volleyball <laughs> <laughs> for uh, the Chinese team or for the Taipei team for that matter um, I'm, I'm just not moved that way uh, because I I grew up in Detroit yeah but it's not know? un-American to, to, to do that though right I mean why should it be Right. Some people have said to me, well, if the American team is playing, I cheer for the American team. But if the American team isn't playing, and, and the same thing is true, you know, in, in baseball. So I cheer for the Detroit Tigers. But if the Tigers aren't playing, all right, I'll cheer for the San Francisco Giants, right? So well, a, no, no, backup, a nationality right? isn't yeah. something as flippantly, you know, discardable as a lot the team loyalty. Is al- it? Al- although it's interesting, in the Olympics, if you look at it, there are many, many, many people who compete for a national team carrying its flag or wearing it who weren't born in that nation. Sure, so, sure. so if you actually look at it, people switch nationalities as competitors not just a specter. That's, that's what I'm saying. That's not the the benchmark. That, right. I mean, it's not well, you know what team you root for. I mean, oh, that, but that, I'm that just using a, that as a fair easy, proxy. Yeah, of yeah. But 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 it's what some people look at. Okay. They, they, they would they would ask that, and you know, I get choked up. Uh, I run. So at the beginning of a marathon or half marathon, they often have someone sing the national anthem. I, I, I take my hat off. I, it moves me. Sure. I am moved. By that, uh, and uh, when uh, I Jeremy and I both feel, I mean, I, I've just repatriated to the, the states after. I mean, I I'm overflowing with patriotic love. I mean, I watched the DNC and cried many times. Right? Yes. Uh, anyway, uh, but but you know, this isn't that's not a, a fair proxy for. for oh well, I mean, let's, 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 let's get down to the brass tacks. I mean, what's the real question is war? Okay, right, so right, right. When there's so, actual, so, yeah, yeah. When, but but these are all these are all little signs. They're all parts of a pattern, pieces of a picture. So I've lived in China very briefly. So when I lived in China, in uh, Shenzhen, uh, I was teaching. I was teaching Chinese students. And uh, one day I was hanging out with them, and I I think they'd organized a trip to the beach and around the campfire. They, They were singing, and they wanted to sing patriotic communist songs. And they wanted me to join. Now, there are a lot of reasons I don't sing in any language, as my <laughs> wife will tell you. But but I said, I, I'm sorry, I, I, I really can't join you singing. 
I don't know these songs. And he just looked at me dumbfounded. How, how, how can you not know? These are patriotic, communist, Chinese songs. I said, yeah, I, I, there's nothing in my background that would suggest that I would know these songs and know the words by heart and want to sing them with you. No, no offense, but they, these are not my songs. But, but you're right. They, these are just minor symbols, but, but, but they're also meaningful to the people around us because my students were hurt. That's when they realized, oh, gee, you know, it's not just that he happens to speak English more idiomatically. It's that he really is from the United States, right. and they just they just hadn't encountered exactly. That, right? I mean, we, was, we'll all see that that sort yeah. of thing. I'm talking more about yeah. in, in the United so, States, yeah. though. So, so in the U.S., yeah, th- there is uh, a constant low level suspicion. Right, right. You're not really one of us. The uh, if you don't like it here, go back to where you came from. My, you speak English so well. To which my reply is always, "Gee, thanks. So do you." You know the how do you like it in our country? The uh, uh, sort of microaggression, the doubting. Where are you really from? As if to say, I'm a liar. I can't be from the Midwest after all. Just look at me. They're really getting at what's your ancestry, what's your ethnicity. But it's sort of rude to go up to someone and say, "Hey, what race are you?" For you personally, has it changed since China's rise? I mean, have have you experienced? A- do you feel like you're you're being regarded differently, or has the level of suspicion risen? It's changed both ways. So both the suspicion's gone up, but also the fear has gone up. It's like, oh, maybe he is a spy. That's a little <laughs> scary, right? Before it's, well, he's just too slow, but we can kick him around. Now it's maybe uh, with the rise of China, you know, China is to be reckoned with. So uh, it's a different type of. Reaction. It's still the suspicion, but now instead of contempt, it's fear. But you're also right, there is a germ of truth to the stereotype. Absolutely, no question. There are Chinese immigrants, Chinese Americans, i.e., people carrying a U.S. passport, who have committed crimes, who have done bad things. There are uh, Professor Xi, Sherry Chen, Denise Wu, Wen Ho Lee, some scientists from the uh, pharmaceutical company, Eli Lilly. So you've got uh, both cases of people who they've admitted they broke the law, and then people who have been racially profiled. And there are some cases where you look at the law and you'd say, hmm, is this actually a good law? Because they haven't actually done something morally wrong, they've done something technically wrong, which is a distinction the law has always recognized. You know, like they a, took uh, home their computer with data that they weren't supposed to, but they didn't actually give it to anyone. That's, that's right. right. That's what Wen Ho Lee actually pled to. Did he commit a crime? Yes. Have other people committed that crime? Yes. Is it a crime? Yes. It's technically a crime, but it's a crime of recklessness, right? A, a crime of negligence. It's a crime that did not actually have a demonstrable harm. Uh, However, in America, we have a principle. You don't stereotype. Just because that person over there who happens to have even the same name as you committed a crime, but who you don't know, who is not actually your cousin, you know, Wu is like Smith. There, There are millions of Wu's. There are actually dozens of people named Frank Wu. I sometimes get their mail. Uh That's not me. It's got nothing to do with me. Um, Maybe they did something wrong. The fact that they did something wrong doesn't mean that I have a racial propensity, an ethnic propensity, or a cultural propensity to engage in the same type of wrongdoing. So it's the same principle behind driving while black and so on. But here, too, let me add, Asian Americans, we're Chinese Americans, we're sometimes complicit. We We make it worse for ourselves. I'll I'll give you two examples of how we make it worse for ourselves. We sometimes make it worse for ourselves because we think issues of racial profiling are about black people and issues of immigration are about Hispanics. I've actually had Chinese Americans say to me, oh, no, no, that that racial profile, that's a black issue. That's not – they they don't identify. At the gut level, they don't think it's the same issue. And I've had them say – Oh, is there an issue about immigration? You, you just mean illegal people, right, from Mexico. I say, no, 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 you, you, you don't understand. There are actually people who are coming who are undocumented from China right now, and there's this whole past of paper sons. 
Plus, the same people who don't like Mexicans, who don't have documents, also aren't crazy about Chinese with papers. Um, right, right, right. So that's one way we've been complicit. We've sort of said, oh, no, no, our, our, our issue, different issue. But the same way we've been complicit is there are uh, – I'll give you an example of how this happens daily over dinner. There are many, many Chinese who will talk about Americans as if they're not one, right? They'll be sitting at home over dinner speaking Mandarin or Cantonese, talking about Megwolin. Yeah. Or Lawai. Yeah, right. Yeah. Yet, uh, and you can tell from the context, it's quite clear they're talking about other people, make well, and not 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 me. Despite the green card or passport mm-hmm. uh, that they've sought to get, uh, and so I, I wrote a blog entitled "Note to Asian Americans: Stop using the word American as if you're not one of them." Right. Uh, that is tiny, but I'm looking for these little examples. You know why? Because these little examples are symbolic. They're illustrative. They're revealing. They're the insight into the much bigger picture uh, about where do you stand uh, on December 7th, 1941, when the Japanese Imperial Navy successfully launches a devastating sneak attack, having uh, traveled all the way across the Pacific undetected. So um, the late Senator Daniel Inouye, represent Hawaii, Hawaii, wrote an autobiography in which he recounts in vivid detail how when he was young, he must have been a teenager, on December 7th, he shook his fist at the sky and cursed the dirty Japs. And he used the racial slur in his autobiography, Jap. Uh, because though of Japanese descent, he was an American. He then went to fight the Nazis and lost an arm uh, and was highly decorated as a military hero. He was part of the most highly decorated military unit in Before U.S. history. Yeah, yeah. That, that sort of stuff chokes me up. Sure. Um, and so we have this yearning to to belong to be accepted, uh, and yet, like probably everyone, to have some connection to our parents and grandparents. So uh, there's something terribly wrong when any child of immigrants is told, you must forsake everything about your ancestry and be ashamed of who brought you into this world in order to be accepted on the playground. And there's something equally wrong with being told that you must embrace it, that it has ownership over you, uh, that it has a claim on you uh, generation after generation. Absolutely. Fair fair enough. So, yeah, I I agree with that entirely. So I I have sympathy for uh, kids who are adoptees, who, who are given a hard time that they don't know Chinese culture. Why would they know Chinese culture? Their adoptive parents, who are their real parents, don't know Chinese culture. So there's no reason and no means that it could have been transmitted to them. I, I agree with you wholeheartedly. Right. We're probably simpatico because we have this set of experience about the same age, both grew up in places without lots of Asian Americans. That's the other difference. Right. Being a Chinese American kid in San Francisco or New York City is nothing like being a Chinese American kid in Detroit or upstate New York. Right. Totally different York, because yeah. there's no critical mass. You know, when you're the only one or where it's just your brothers and you or just your family in, in the entire subdivision or in the whole neighborhood, you can't form a community. It's not possible. Uh, you have to have a critical mass. You know, if you're Jewish to worship, you have to have a minion. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, given, you know, these sometimes divided loyalties, and I mean, certainly if I can speak for Kaiser, both of us, you know, really hope that the U.S. and China can uh, get along better because, you know, our our lives are intertwined so deeply with both countries. Um, do you think there's uh, there are things that Chinese Americans can do 
to contribute bridging the divide between the U.S. and China. Um, you know, and which side is the Chinese or the American is is more in need of these efforts uh, on the part of Chinese Americans? Right. It's much needed. There is a bridge building role. And Chinese Americans are uniquely situated, but historically haven't been called upon. So there has been this concept of China hands, right? Experts on China, pedigreed, Ivy League educated, uh, maybe worked for the State Department, you know, who would uh, cable back uh, an analysis of who lost China. All the China, and some of them were missionaries, some of them were fluent in Chinese, some of them had been born in China to missionary parents. All the China hands were Anglo. Sure. They, they weren't service. Yeah, right, right, they, right. they weren't just white. They were elite white Anglo-Saxon Protestant. You know, they weren't swarthy. They weren't Catholic. You know, they 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 represented the Eastern establishment, right? Uh, Chinese immigrants, Chinese Americans were never among the China hands until now. Now there's a possibility that Chinese Americans can be bridge builders and. Uh, I, I'm chair of Committee of 100, an organization founded on that concept in 1989 by architect I.M. Pei, cellist Yo-Yo Ma, uh, businesswoman Shirley Young, financier Henry Tang, philanthropist Oscar Tang. Uh, they believed that there was a way with language and culture as Americans that they could play a constructive, useful role, a new Chinese-American China hand. We just went to Beijing for a summit on philanthropy. We took Committee of 100 members to meet Chinese peers. And a major international news magazine did an article. We could not have paid for better press. The lead to this article covering this event of ours, unprecedented, we had the UN Secretary General Ban Ki-moon, as well as former UK Prime Minister Gordon Brown, a distinguished company to travel with. For sure. This magazine opened their article by saying, five years ago, Warren Buffett and Bill Gates went to Beijing to talk to their Chinese peers, high net worth individuals, about charity, philanthropy, giving back, civil society. And they were rebuffed. They were given a cold shoulder. It's, the message was, who are you to condescend to us, you know, to come lecture us? You know? And then this article went on to say, Chinese Americans went received warmly. And it was the same message. There's no difference in the message. Charity, philanthropy, giving back, the importance of civil society, of civic engagement, of participation. Same message, different messenger, different language. Not only the one variable, though. I mean, it's time has elapsed, too. And I mean, the the culture of business has changed, too, in these five years. That's right. No, no, the, the world has changed. You're absolutely right. So rapidly, it's unbelievable. But it didn't hurt that the working language was Mandarin. It did not hurt that every single speaker who stood up, even me, a kid from Detroit, I opened by speaking Mandarin. I'm told it was passable. (laughs) I did did have to practice, but it was passable. Uh, And so, and the entire rest of the day's proceedings were conducted in much? How much of the committee's work is is focused at China and how much is focused on educating American audiences? I mean, how how would you, if you had to sort of divvy up? They're the same, right? They're they're linked. So, 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 uh, Committee of 100, some people say we have two missions. I would prefer to say they're dual missions, they're twins, they're the opposite side of the coin. So, it's U.S.-China relations and Chinese-Americans. But what we do is we bring these together and say, here's the concept. Chinese-Americans who know the language, the culture, who aren't going to engage in terrible stereotyping – but who are Americans? This is an American nonprofit. We are not and will never be spokespeople for China. We're certainly not spies. We're here to be a credible bridge builder, to bring people together in a way that's more needed now than in 1989. In U.S.-China relations in 1989 were not Neither, good. Yeah, absolutely. But now your podcast is great. It's, it's so important. It, t- take a look at the newspaper headlines every day. There's a headline about China, and every day it's negative. And many days there's a headline about Chinese Americans, 
and it's not positive either. So both of these are going on at once. And what's happened is the rise of China, the rise of Chinese Americans, and the perceived decline of the U.S. I say perceived for a reason because it's where, not declining. Yeah. Right? yeah well, I mean, where where, where we do you think? Yeah. Where do you think an ambitious, upwardly mobile Chinese family wants their kid to go to exactly. college? Right, right, right. They want their kid to go to college at Berkeley. They they want their uh, pre adolescent to go to prep school. That's right. They want if, to, if, if they can afford it. Yeah, and then well, go on to Exeter and right. That's well, right. I mean, where, so where, 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 where do they want to buy real estate? Decline, they want to buy real estate in San Francisco. Right, but America could well be in decline depending on what happens in November. Let's let's talk about that. I mean, as the <laughs> final question is, we're, we're coming up on the hour. Uh, you've watched many presidential elections. Uh, in I mean, as many as I have, presumably, you know, with the same age, you're surely familiar by now with the usual pattern. I mean, a bit of China bashing usually from both parties, and then you know, business as usual after January. 20th after an inauguration, right? Are things different this time? I mean, has Trump's anti-China and anti-immigrant rhetoric affected Chinese Americans already? And is Hillary Clinton shying away from free trade and her general appetite for interventionism and kind of a bit of, you know, liberal hawkishness? Is that having an impact on, on, Ameri- on Chinese Americans? So I know you're going to say I'm also a lawyer, so I'm very careful. Committee of lawyers is a nonprofit. Right, exactly. I, I'm right. non-profit. not here to make yeah. any partisan statement, but I uh, you, you you knew I was going to say yeah, that. sure, but sure, sure. No, uh, I, I will say this: rhetoric has consequences, bullying has consequences, and uh, you already see that in the behavior people are displaying toward one another. So, if you had asked me 18 months ago about race relations in the United States, not just about U.S., China, Asian Americans, Chinese Americans, about race. I would have said, well, there was a, a, a long period of time when, uh, when bigotry in the United States was blatant, egregious, open. It was in your face. There was just no denying it. And then we achieved a consensus, civil rights movement, struggle, and then we agreed. You could not be a political candidate. You could not be a corporate CEO. You couldn't be a college president and stand up and make openly bigoted remarks. It's not permitted. Illegal, morally wrong, inappropriate, impolite, not to be done. However, the past 18 months have uh, seen, have brought a resurgence of horrible forms of violence and, uh, openly hostile racial rhetoric and those are related they're they're not two separate phenomena the violence on the one hand and the language on the other hand it's the language of violence so uh, it's language about exclusion about uh, america in on the decline but more than that who's to blame right uh, and the two targets are china or mexico or chinese or mexicans and you know, someone who's angry about China. So if, if you're a laid-off worker from a factory, laid-off factory worker uh, in the American Midwest, in Detroit, let's say, there's nothing you personally are going to do that's going to affect China. But you can drive around till you see someone with a Chinese-looking face, right? And you can beat them up. Or try to run them off the road or, you know, commit some crime or at least roll down your window and shout obscenities and racial epithets at them. So uh, we have entered a different era fed by uh, social media, by Twitter and Snapchat, right? But here's what's happened. Now, when you call people on it, they say, oh... It's ironic. It's sarcastic. Yeah, you can't take that seriously. Come on. Can't imagine who you're talking about. Yeah. Well, (laughs) more than one person uh, will respond with, lighten up. Don't be politically correct. That's not what I really mean. Well, what do people really mean, right? And so I'm always willing to give people the benefit of the doubt. Maybe... Someone who says these things doesn't really mean them. Maybe it's just posturing. Maybe it's just rhetoric. But there are other people who are listeners who take it seriously. They, they're they not 
part of this sophisticated millennial postmodern culture of irony and snarkiness where you can say anything you want in the comments section on a website, they, they read that and they go out and get a gun, right? right? So we've lost a consensus that we had that was so fragile. We, we had it just briefly, but we did have it. It's possible to get back to it, but this is how America is not in decline because we are open. We do accept people. So I'm actually an optimist. I believe in the American dream. My parents believe in the American dream. I would not be here if it weren't for the American dream, right? Uh, and I continue to believe in the American dream. Uh, I love visiting uh, Beijing and Shanghai, Taipei and Hong Kong. I'd like to continue to do that. I'd like to play a constructive role. I might even live one of those places, but I'll always come back here. Sure. And when I talk to other Chinese Americans, when I talk to highly successful Chinese Americans who do business in China, who have investments there, assets there, relatives there, I, I sometimes ask them, and perhaps you do on this show, I say to them, you know, could you have achieved the success that you have if you'd stayed in China, and they just look at me and they say, "No, not not possible." Right, 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 right. Yet they go back and forth. They're not hostile to China; they're welcoming, and many of them want to make it possible. They want to create a culture of innovation, of right. entrepreneurship. So they do want to see that happen. Uh, you know, the, the irony here is China is becoming what America always wanted China to become. Uh, if you travel back in time to Nixon's visit, if you were around in 1972 or uh, any period earlier when there was an effort to reach out to China for relations to be normalized, they wanted China to be part of the world economy, to participate, for people to be able to travel, for there to be uh, more openness. And China has moved in that direction. But instead of that being applauded, it's been condemned because watch what you wish for. People didn't realize that as China became more and more like, like America, it would compete with America with a much larger population base and uh, that uh, this emergence of China and its acceptance of international norms, uh, opening up of trade, you know, so uh, that we have contradictory messages. What, what is it we want China to do to have consumer culture? Well, that means that Chinese people want to buy Gucci and Prada. That's right. Right. And they want to consume and they want American cars. They want German cars. They want what Americans have. They want, they two, want American two cars, cars. <laughs> <laughs> two cars in every garage. And so the consequence is China comes to look more like America, but that's frightening. It's, it's always scary when you look at yourself in a mirror that way. I think it's, um, it's a fundamental article of faith for me, and I think it's, it's an enabling premise for a lot of people who, like me, uh, want – are deeply invested in both the United States and in China. Just the, the the fundamental compatibility of the American dream and the so-called Chinese dream. I think these two things are are ultimately compatible, and uh, let's all work toward that. I want to thank you, Frank Wu, for coming on and, and talking to us. Uh, we had a, a, a very fun and interesting chat, and I hope you guys enjoyed it. Uh, before we get to recommendations, I want to remind our listeners that the Cynical Podcast is powered by SupChina. Check out the app and subscribe to the newsletter at at subchina.com. Uh, you can follow SubChina on Twitter at, at SubChina News and on Facebook at facebook.com slash SubChina News. On to recommendations. Jeremy, what do you have for us this week? I'd like to recommend a book called Musings of a Chinese Gourmet. Uh, this was written in the early 1950s, a long oh. time before there were foodies when Americans were th thinking spam was the height of 
good cooking and <laughs> British people were over boiling their broccoli. And yeah, a, a guy named F.T. Chung, who was a former Chinese ambassador to London, it was written in English, and it attempts to explain to the uh, Western reader uh, some of the marvels and sophistication of Chinese food. And it's just a wonderful little historical relic of a time before most Westerners had any idea of the glories of Chinese food. Is that available for purchase online? It is. Uh, it was republished recently by Graham Earnshaw's outfit, Earnshaw Press. Oh, great. Published in Shanghai, I think, but it's available on Amazon and elsewhere. Oh, yeah, I'll check that out. Thanks, man. Frank, what do you have for us? Well, I already recommended the 1989 thriller Point Break, starring Keanu Reeves, a great Asian actor. Uh, but let, let me add An Asian that. actor. Great is, is actually kind of debatable. <laughs> uh, I recommend that everyone visit China. Yeah. Probably everyone listening to your podcast yeah, has they, already if done. They don't that. live there already, yeah. <laughs> but I recommend that they visit again because uh-huh. just the passage of a single year astonishes me. I now travel to China regularly right. and extensively, uh, and I'm just shocked at the pace of development. It is it's astonishing, phenomenal. Yeah. It, it just hasn't happened in human history, and we can say that all we want, but until you're there sweating in Beijing, you, you just don't have a sense of it. I, I couldn't agree more. Jeremy, we're not getting back there until February, huh? February, yeah. Uh, Unless, time can't yeah. pass more slowly. It's terrible, but I, I can't wait to get back there. Uh, my recommendation for this week is called Two Arabic Travel Books. Uh, it's Accounts of China and India by Abu Zaid al-Sarifi, uh, al-Sirafi. And the other one is called Mission to the Volga. Uh, the first of the travel books is the obvious one that's of relevance to our listenership. It was written during the Abbasid Caliphate and uh, probably in, in the early 9th century. So uh, one of, the, it's actually the, the Accounts of China and India, it's two books within that uh, one, the authorship is unclear. The other is is very clearly by Al-Sirafi. Al, Al and uh, it was translated by Tim McIntosh Smith. The uh, second account is actually after the Huangchao Rebellion. So it's after the, the massive massacre of, of, of the Arab community in Guangzhou. But the uh, other one is before. And what's striking to me about this as I'm reading it is just... Uh, this is a China that you very much recognize. I mean, it's still, I mean, this account by these Arab travelers, this is a China that, that still, it sounds like the China I'm familiar with. I mean, uh, it's it's kind of an amazing uh, book to read that, that China during the late Tang Dynasty was already very much China. And it, it's, it's a, a bit pricey. It's like 50 bucks. You can buy it from New York University Press uh, and they'll deliver it to you in a couple of days. But I highly recommend it. Check it out. So, Frank, hey, thanks again once, once again, and we hope to have you on again. We'll, we'll be back to the Bay Area, or you know, if you're over on the East Coast, let's hang out. All right, fantastic. We'll figure out how our parents know each other, because they almost certainly do, <laughs> or did. The Seneca Podcast is powered by SupChina and is produced by Kaiser Guo, myself, and Jeremy Goldcorn. Special thanks this week to Anla Cheng, to Amadeo Tumalillo, and Soraya Darabi from SupChina. Thanks also to Lei Gung, who I chatted with a bunch in thinking through this week's topics. Drop us an email at Seneca at SubChina.com. Visit our Facebook page at Facebook.com slash Seneca Podcast. And follow us on Twitter at Seneca Podcast. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you all next week. Take care. Rock and roll.